morning. Privileged to bring you the word this morning. And if you turn to Mark 12, that's where we are right now in our series, Walking Through Mark. While you're turning there, I'll tell you an interesting happening. Um, happened to me Monday evening. I was brushing my teeth, and you know how you get some water in your mouth to swish the toothpaste out? I noticed uh, water started coming out inside of my mouth. So I said, that's kind of strange and a little bit awkward. So I got a little bit more and, uh, you know, swished it around and more water came out. So I quickly realized uh, I was having a little trouble with the side of my face. And so I ended up having, um, getting Bell's palsy that night. So if you don't know what that is, it's a little bit of the symptoms of a, of a stroke, but it's, it's, it's actually very temporary and it's going to go away. And um, I feel very blessed it's not more worse than it is. But I tell you that because for some reason, I, you know, well, because of that, I just can smile like on this side of my face, you know. So if it looks like I'm really enjoying this side of the, the room <laughs> and you guys are just kind of like out of it, it's, I need you to know that. So I told my life group on Tuesday and they really had a good time with it. Um, they're like, okay, if you say something funny, you know, you turn here and like, you know, and then turn back and like, okay, back to the word. <laughs> I didn't think it was that funny. <laughs> in fact, one of the guys after my life group came up and was like, you didn't look half bad today. Um, okay, all right. Um, we're in Mark 12, and let me catch you up in Mark 12. Jesus is within a week of his, um, his death here, and he, he's mentioned several times that this is going, going to happen, and the disciples aren't totally getting it, and um, they keep following, but they're kind of hoping for a Roman government coup will take over. But after his triumphal entry, they go into the temple, and it's like Jesus has a takeover of the, of the temple. Like, okay, we weren't expecting that. The religious leaders didn't think that that was a very nice thing to do to their little thing they had going in the temple, so they start plotting to kill him. And uh, they, we come to this question we looked at last week. They want to know. By what authority do you have to doing these things? You're doing these things by what authority? Who puts you in charge, in other words? And that's where we are. Let me say something about a parable. This whole story is a parable. A parable is um, it's meant to draw you into it, like most good stories do. And it does that, but it's meant to do more than entertain. It's meant to get a truth into your heart. That's what a parable is meant to do. It demands a response. And so many of you here may have similar questions this morning about, about Jesus' authority in your life and about certain areas of your life you're trying to maintain control over and where Jesus' authority fits in. And our prayer is that, is that God would speak to those specific areas and would demand a response. Let's go with that hope and expectation to Mark 12. Read with me. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. He leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent them to another he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, 
beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. A reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it would be unto your glory and our good if you would penetrate our hearts the reality that you are owner of all things. You are meant to be on the throne of our lives. And Holy Spirit, if you would convict us of the sin, of those areas where we keep control. Free us of those before we leave here this morning. Put on a display of your grace towards us, God. Forgive. Draw near. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have kids, let me ask you a question this morning. Um, do you ever feel like like your kids are planning a coup? You know what I mean? Like a coup, like a takeover. Um, you know, like your, like your six-year-old uh, pulls your three-year-old and your two-year-old into the, the closet and is like, okay, here's a plan. Shelly, you go out and ask mom just... Just beg her for a real cup instead of a sippy cup, okay? When she gives you that, you're going to take it into the living room, and then you're going to spill it everywhere. And uh, then you're going to put on a dreadfully cute face of innocence. Act like nothing, like it was an accident. And then, um, Matthew, you, uh, you just keep asking mom for the iPad or iPhone until she, just keep at her until she finally gives in. Um. Or she can't think coherently or something. <laughs> and I will come in. I'll grab a permanent marker. And I'll um, grab a piece of paper. And on the rug, I'll just get dangerously close to the lines. And it won't take long. And we'll have a takeover. <laughs> Break. I'm sure most kids um, have not had this kind of intentional type meeting. Um, they're not smart enough or, you know, to collaborate like that. But I think it does, um, if you think about how our kids act sometimes, uh, we get a little insight into that we are born with a resistance to authority. One of our, uh, one, one of our ch- children's, if you have children's, one of their first words, in fact, are, no. Um, when one of our first first said that, it was the, it's just really, honestly, a mixture of emotions, right? I mean, like on the one side, you're like, it's so cute. And then the other side, you're like, I've been alive over 30 years. I am a grown man, and you've been alive like a a few weeks. I mean, you know, and you're telling me no? I could squash you, you know? (laughs) Um, It's crazy. John Calvin once said, he said, everyone, or he said, nothing is more adverse to the disposition of man than subjection. 
Everyone has within him the soul of a king. The tenants in our text today, they have a soul of a king. They, as they want to take over the land of the rightful owner. They're staging a coup. Behind the story though, Jesus is revealing to the, these religious leaders that their heart is so adverse, so hardened to subjection to his authority. They were so close to the Savior and yet at the same time so cynical and yet so far away. But this text is not just for them, is it? We also, you and I, have within us the soul of a king. We have played a part of this cosmic coup against our Creator ever since Adam and Eve first rebelled in the garden. It's the reason for all our pain and misery in life. And where this parable pronounces judgment for some, we're going to find good news for some of us. And the point is, is that Jesus is the worthy authority over our lives. He came to win our submission. And we are called to submit to his authority. That's the point. We're going to look at rightful authority, rejected authority, and then reclaimed authority. So let's first look at rightful authority. This is a pretty straightforward parable. Let's set the stage. A man planted the vineyard. A vineyard uh, in verse 1. It's man. It's a picture of God. He's the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is a rich Old Testament um, metaphor for the people of God. They would have known it well. In Isaiah 5, um, Isaiah is singing a song of God planting a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug a, around it, removed its stones, planted uh planted it with the vest vine, with a tower and a vat. And it was a song of how God thought of his people. These leaders knew the passage well, and then therefore they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. The tenants were the religious leaders. He leased it out to them. See, the others uh, standing around listening to this parable would have known what Jesus is talking about. This is the agricultural community. I came from, I moved here from Mississippi. And this is not unfamiliar. A man would work his land all his life, and then when he retired, he would lease it out. And so somebody else would work it, and then he would go back and rightfully expect he would receive some of the produce. Uh, here in Orlando, I think it works a little different. My family's coming in at the end of the year, and it seems like y'all, y'all do this with houses. Um, in Kissimmee, you know, it's like during that time of the year, it's like every house is rented out. I don't know where everybody goes, but, um, but you can rent a house, and you stay in it, and they expect you to pay for it, right? Kind of obvious. So, verse 2, you find kind of a normal situation. After a season, it says the owner comes back and expects some of the fruit. But then in verse 3, it's it a little interesting. They would have expected the tenants to pay up, but instead, the guy, um, they take the guy and they, they beat him up, and they send him back. The listeners would have kind of, been struck a little bit like that's kind of strange like what why did they do that that didn't make sense and you see what happens they're starting to get drawn into this story so verse four they the beat up guy gets back to his owner and they uh, he sends another guy the tenants take this guy they strike him on the head and they shame him 
the listeners would have been like, uh, you know, what in the world is going on? What are, why are they doing that? Surely the owner is going to send like an army back and, and, and deal with this. Instead, verse 5, the owner sends another servant. And what do they do to him? They kill him. And then he sends more, many more. They beat some and they kill others. See how the listeners are now drawn in? This is now not a familiar situation that they'd heard of. They would have been astonished. What are you talking about? And then Jesus brings the most, the ultimate twist. Verse 6, he had still one other. A most beloved son. Listeners, surely not. Well, when the owner realized what they've done to everybody else, why would he send a son whom he dearly loved when they already deserved nothing but vengeance? Jesus says, and they took the son and they killed the son and they threw him out of the vineyard. Can't you just see everyone standing around with their mouths standing just wide open? Why, why is this story so confusing or disturbing to you? Or would it, why would it have been to them? Maybe two reasons. One, this man is not being treated like the rightful owner of the vineyard. I mean, think about it. If you rented out your house, you got a house over there and you rented it out, and you know you sent your friend Gary over there to pick up a check. He arrives at the door and the guy just hits him in the nose. You know, you'd think like, that's awkward, Okay. I'll go back and tell my owner. So he goes back and he tells them. And I mean, this man had labored to build this vineyard at great cost to himself. He planted it. He collected stones, built a, a wine press. The fruit was rightfully his, just as the house is rightfully yours. But the tenants are not treating him as the rightful owner. And number two, why is this man being so patient? Why is he being so merciful? Okay, maybe they didn't like Gary very much. So I'll send Chuck. Chuck, you go over there and, uh, you know, try it out. So Chuck goes over there, he opens the door. They just beat him up and shame him. What would you do in that situation? Would you keep sending others? Why is he being so merciful and patient? Here's what's going on. The point kind of of the whole parable. Jesus had painted a, a picture a parable picture of the history of God's authority over all things and His mercy being rejected among His people. See, God God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He's the owner and final authority over all things. He Himself gives to all life and breath in all things, His Word says. And He gathered a people for Himself. These were He called His treasured possession, His vineyard. And He expected them to bear fruit. And then he put religious leaders over them to tend and cultivate this fruit among the vineyard. And yet when they rejected his authority, God sent prophets like Daniel and Isaiah and Zechariah and most recently John the Baptist. And what did they do with them? They beat some and they killed others. And Jesus, the point he's teaching is that he's teaching what will ultimately happen to those who finally and ultimately reject God's authority and his mercy. We get a glimpse of it. See, he says in verse 9, and you can almost picture him 
looking straight into their eyes. Picture it. He says, what will the tenant, what will the owner do when he goes back to the tenants? What the, what, what will the owner do? In the other two gospels, the tenants actually respond, or the, uh, the religious leaders. He says, he will come and destroy those tenants. The lesson here is this, is it is a dangerous thing to reject the authority and mercy of the God who created you. The mercy and patience of God is amazing and we love hearing the story of God's grace that is so abundant in Scripture. But we will never hunger for it. We will never thirst for it. We will never find a need for it unless we really understand and are humbled by God's justice. Those who ultimately reject God's authority and mercy will be destroyed. They will receive an an eternity apart from the presence of God. I met a man this week who told me that he grew up in church. And that he he said that he, um, he went to church, but he just didn't listen very much. He didn't really care very much. And the more he didn't listen, the more he seemed to kind of not care... He said the more God felt distance from him, more God felt just kind of further away. It's often like that, I think. You know, sometimes people think, oh, I, I have plenty of time. I can kind of reject him now and, and do what I want. And I'll come back later when it's more convenient. The reality is, though, that Scripture teaches us, our hearts are often like And God's justice or judgment is often like a snowball rolling down a hill. It it gathers speed. It gathers size and momentum. And very soon, we're unable to even stop itself from becoming hardened. Or you actually might think of it like what happened to my face this week on Monday. I actually lost taste in my mouth a little bit. And uh, stopped feeling some things on this side of my my face. And... What can happen to physically to a face can happen spiritually to a heart. It can lose its spiritual taste and its feeling. And that is ultimately judgment. C.S. Lewis said in the Screwtape Letters, he says, the more often one feels without acting on it, the less he will ever be able to act. And in the end, the less he will even be able to feel. That is ultimate judgment. To reject God's authority. To not act on it. And think that you'll be able to do later. May not be the case. And that's terrifying. And for some here, surely there are some that need to heed this warning to the religious leaders this morning. Are you rejecting God's authority? His ownership over your life? Have you resisted His mercy when He has called you? Are you hardening your heart even now and possibly trusting that your good works or your religion will get you right standing with God in the end? I encourage you to submit even now and beg for His mercy. But many of us are Christians and have accepted and received his mercy and God's authority over our lives. But I think this parable still gives us a glimpse into our hearts and the nature of how we 
still can resist God's authority in certain areas of our lives. So let's look at some practical ways in point two that we reject God's authority. What are ways that we reject God's authority? It seems that what the tenants really wanted here may not have been the fruit, but they actually wanted control over the vineyard. Think about it. They were acting as if the vineyard was theirs. And this makes sense since most of the religious leaders, they were not real jealous of Jesus' love and care for the people. And, and they were threatened because Jesus was willing to come in and help them care for the people and love the people well and shepherd them. That's not what threatened them. No, what they really wanted was they wanted control over the people. They were threatened of their own authority and their power and their prestige, their success among the people. Like Jesus was going to take that away. And they were willing to do anything to keep ownership over it. And here we have a window into our own hearts. One way that you and I can reject God's authority is to assume ownership of areas of our lives, and we try to maintain control. Let me give you a few examples of that. So, I walk into the living room the other day, and um, my two-year-old um, boy, Cannon, was yelling at my three-year-old, Avery. And Avery had our coffee table. She, she was pushing it up against the couch, right? And just pushing with all her might. And, and Cannon, Cannon would like the coffee table not to be up against the couch. <laughs> so he was pulling back against the table uh, so it wouldn't be. Um, and, and he was yelling, no, A.E. And she, he was pulling to no avail because she was putting all her weight up against the table. And just this little tug of coffee table or something. <laughs> and I was thinking, I just stopped and think. I was like, what is going on inside of her that makes this coffee table so important right now? That that, that coffee table would be leaned up against the couch like that. And the only thing I could think of is that it's just, she just wanted control. She wanted authority. She'd assumed ownership over the coffee table at that moment. And she was going to make sure it worked out as she had wanted. And I was like, oh, isn't that a little picture, a little glimpse of, of areas of my life that I want control over my life, over certain areas? I think about my parenting. Isn't it easy in parenting to assume ownership over our kids and try to control them. You know, we think something like this. If, if we do A, B, and C, that they should behave a certain way, that they'll turn out to be model citizens. We think that their, uh, their obedience, their achievement, their success, whether in school or sports, it's a rightful expectation because they're ours. And when they don't perform the way we want them to, we, we show disappointment or anger. When the reality is, as we know this, that God is the owner, the rightful owner of our children. He's in control. Children, let me speak to you for a minute. You, like your parents, have the heart or the soul of a king within you. One way you reject God's authority is to try to control, manipulate your parents into doing getting them to do always what you want them to do, regardless 
of how they have exercised their authority over you, regardless of what they've told you to do. You do this by either nagging or getting angry or showing your emotions. That is a rejection of God's authority in your life. Teenagers, college students. I was one of the worst examples probably of trying to control what others think of me. It's so easy to assume ownership over our reputation, over our image. When God is the rightful owner of our bodies. He created us exactly how he wanted us to look. Singles, how easy is it to take control of our dating, of your dating life? Of those who notice you and try to manipulate that. To assume ownership over your marital timeline. God is the rightful owner of your future spouse. In fact, that's why Jesus said what God has brought together, you not separate. God is in control. Married couple. Married couples, how easy is it to assume ownership over your marriage and try to control your spouse to making them do what you want them to do? We do this uh, showing anger when they don't do exactly what we want our way, um, or we shut down. We withdraw. Many of us are in ministry, and we should take a special, special note because these are the religious leaders. How easy is it for us to assume ownership over our ministry? Things have got to turn out this way. We're going to be upset. It's hard sometimes to release control in ministry. Maybe it's your health as you're growing older. You think it's your rightful expectation that we should feel and turn out a certain way. It's hard to believe that God is in control even of our health. We all have within us the heart of a king in certain areas. Certain areas we declare they're mine. I want control over these. And it's so good for us to search these areas of our hearts. Those areas that keep us anxious and worried or afraid at night. And see if those are areas that we're maintaining control. It was about 18 years ago. I was in college and a good friend of mine sat me down and drew two concentric circles. Many of you know this illustration. It's a simple one. He knew what was going on in my life and knew I needed to hear this. He drew two little L's in each circle, or one L in each circle, representing a throne. He drew a little S in the first one. Then he drew a cross in the second one. And then he just asked me this question. He said, as a good friend, to one who really needed to hear this, He said, who is on the throne of your life? Yourself or is Christ? And it was a crucial moment of my understanding my great sin, my complete rejection of God's authority and assuming ownership of my life. And it led me to an understanding and a need for a Savior. But it's crazy, 18 years later, I'm still seeing more and more areas of my own life where this little S assumes control of my throne. The truth is, is we were never meant to be in control. We're never meant to be on the throne of our lives. Christ is a great Savior, and He deserves the throne of your and my life. And He's the only worthy and satisfying Lord of that throne. 
And so I just want to end with our third point, that how can you surrender control? How can we give God control of those specific areas? How can we release ownership and subject ourselves wholeheartedly to God's authority? So let's look at reclaimed authority, how Jesus wins it. Let's return to the text. Verse 10 and 11. Jesus teaches them that the rejection of his authority was actually prophesied hundreds of years earlier in Psalm 118. He says, have you never read this scripture? He says, the stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone. We're not very familiar with cornerstones, so let me explain it, what a cornerstone is. It's the most important stone or building in a building and would be used, uh, a cornerstone would be used as the first stone that aligns the whole building. It's the most important thing. It, it holds the whole building up. The word can actually also be used, and as, uh, could be used here as, the, as a capstone, in which case it would actually be the last stone. They'd build the whole building, and then they'd put this perfectly shaped stone right there in the middle of the arch, and it was perfectly shaped to, keep the whole, to hold the whole thing together. That was the cornerstone. There's a story that when Solomon was building the temple, it's the most important building of Jewish culture, that there was a stone that was thrown out. It was rejected. It was considered worthless. And it ended up in the end being found and being used as the perfect centerpiece, the center stone in the arch used to hold the whole temple together. So what Jesus is saying here is so weighty. It's profound. Because he's saying this. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the capstone of all of life and eternity. And I, the one you are rejecting, am the one who holds all of life together. Paul said in Colossians, through Christ, through Christ, think of this, the one who was standing before them right then is saying, later said, through me all things were created, whether in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all thrones and dominions and rulers and authority are under me. All things were created through me and for me, Jesus is saying, and through me, he says what? All things hold together. The reason you see these religious leaders then were rejecting God's authority is because they had placed something else in its place. Something so small, something so insignificant as their own prestige and their reputation they were putting at the center of their, of their lives and they were hoping that this would be a cornerstone that would keep it all together. They believed that maintaining control and holding on to their position of authority was a better capstone. It's the same reason that we also can't release certain areas of control over our lives. That we maintain it. We grasp it. We still think that those are good cornerstones. That if we rest in them and we trust in them, that they will bring the comfort and the security and the happiness that we really are longing for. Surely those will keep our lives together. See, the reality is, is and we know this, our kids, they, they're not stone-like, are they? They're, they're never meant to be cornerstones of our lives. They're never meant to hold us together. But if we trust in them, they'll crush us. And them. 
or spouse. Uh, Maybe successful at work and a great cook. (laughs) Not a great cornerstone of your life. He or she was never meant to hold your life together. And we must release control over them and allow Christ to, to fulfill, to be what they never were meant to. Being well thought of by others. Good grades. Uh, that promotion you're looking for. Good health. All great things we should seek. Horrible cornerstones that will disappoint us if we trust in them. So let me just end by giving you, presenting from this passage a worthy cornerstone in the hopes that you would take even now and replace and say, may Christ assume that area, that position of my life. In the midst of God's, of their rejecting God's authority, verse 6, he says that with incredible patience and mercy, verse 6, it says, he sent his beloved son. Jesus was the most beloved, intimate son. He said, he mentioned this, God said this at his baptism and transfiguration. This is my most intimately beloved son. In verse 11, it says that his rejection of his beloved son was no mere accident. It actually came from the Lord. This came about from the Lord. This was a divine coup within the failed coup. The one with authority, in other words, willingly gave up his authority in life to be rejected so that he would be rejected and killed on a cross. Remember what he told Pilate as he stood before this one seemingly in authority? He says, look here, you have no authority over me. I have authority to take up my life and lay it down. And you'd have nothing unless I granted it to you. This is the one who came laying down his authority to die upon the cross for you and me. And which means this. Jesus willingly drank down every ounce of our rebellion. Every single moment of willful, sinful rejection of God's authority was placed on him on the cross. And the Father then rejected him with his fierce wrath instead of you and me. That's what happened. That was the exchange. Jesus was rejected so we would not be. Oh, what a worthy cornerstone. See, the rulers thought that if they reject the heir of the land and assume ownership, that they would get fullness of life. And that's exactly what our culture is preaching. Believe what you want. Do what you want. And you'll find fullness of life. And Jesus is thought as just a little pebble, a little good moral teacher, a little add-on to a good life. And the reality is, is this universal stone-like person that holds all things together will one day come face to face with all of us either in judgment then or mercy now and for us the simple glorious truth is this is that if we on the other side if we if we receive the air of all things and release ownership of our lives we actually get it all we become co-heirs with the air We become his beloved from here on out into eternity, the recipients of his utmost affection and love. So listen, I end with this. Jesus is the most worthy of cornerstones. He's the trustworthy authority over every area of your life. He alone can provide that necessary security and comfort 
that we long for, let us joyfully submit to that authority. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we come to this table, we pray, Lord, that you would give us, by your grace, the ability to joyfully surrender any area of our life that anyone is holding on to right now and trusting in that as a cornerstone that will hold up their lives. Lord, they're just they're false cornerstones. We confess that. And you, oh God, are a gracious and merciful and patient God. In Jesus, you are a worthy capstone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.